a number of years ago, I guess it's uh, almost eight, eight years ago now, I spent um, most of a year on a long extended pilgrimage in India along with um, a friend of mine who's a monk and uh, had just completed his 25th year in robes and had arranged for a period of sabbatical from his duties as abbot of the monastery where he was living at that time here in the States. And uh, he asked me if I would be able to come along and uh, be his companion, attendant, take care of the things that monks don't take care of. And I invited a friend of mine to join us because I, I had some duties looking after my elderly parents who were still alive at that time and uh, I was afraid I'd have to abandon uh, the Ajahn. So I, I had a friend, so we were kind of tag team attendants over the course of, of a bit more than a year in India. And part of that time we spent in, uh, in an area um, that at the time of the Buddha, Buddha was called Savati. Uh, it's a place where he spent a lot of the rains retreats. Um, and I believe that more of the discourses in the Pali canon were delivered in that location than anywhere else. He, he liked it there. It's amazing in place, some of these places, like the ancient city walls of the, the town of Savati are still there. Some of you have maybe been there even though that town doesn't exist anymore. And that's the location of the Jetavana Grove, uh, Anattapindika's park, it was called, um, where the Buddha um, had a, his kuti and eventually a monastery grew up there. There was a beautiful park there outside the city walls. And so during the time we were spending the rains period there, this period of 12 weeks, three lunar months, you could say, in this uh, place, staying at a small uh, temple. And every morning we would get up. Our, our morning ritual was to rise uh, when it was still dark and make our way over to the Jetavana Park and get there in time for the sunrise. And um, you know, we'd walk through the fields there. It had a very such a timeless feel to that landscape. Uh, people just beginning to stir in those early hours and the fields of rice and uh, bullock carts and all the things the Buddha spoke about in many of his teachings were still going on in rural India there. So we would make our way there and spend a bit of time sitting in the, on the foundation of what they say was where the Buddha's hut was. Who knows? Certainly an ancient place there. It had a very um, incredible feeling. And so we would spend the morning meditating there in the Jetavana Park. And on our way walking, we would pass by in any of these places. If For those of you who've been there, you notice that there are, are what are called viharas, abiding places for pilgrims. Uh, and all of the different Buddhist countries have these. So there's a Sri Lankan temple and a Burmese temple and a Thai temple and uh, Chinese and Japanese and uh, Tibetan temples where you can stay often, Korean. We were staying at the Korean temple, actually. 
And so we would walk to the park in the early morning and often there would be some chanting coming from one of these viharas on our way, walking over in the early morning cool. And uh, one chant that we heard a lot many mornings was someone was chanting the Satipatthana Sutta. It's a very um, revered, very beloved teaching, and we've referred to it many times. It's this teaching on the four foundations, four abidings of mindfulness. It's the, the core set of instructions for our practice in the Pali Canon. So as a special treat, I'm going to play a little bit of the, the chanting of it to start the talk tonight. It's not the same exact one that I heard in the mornings in India, but it's quite lovely. It's by a Sri Lankan monk named Venerable Omalpe Sobita Mahatera. And so um, you can just uh, listen quietly, close your eyes if you'd like, and maybe pretend that you're hearing the Buddha or one of his disciples give you a discourse in Pali. And even though we don't speak that language now, and most of us, we might hear a word or two that's become familiar. I think there's a power in hearing these teachings in the original language, this ancient language um, that exists now only because these teachings have been carried uh, over through centuries in this language. So there's a power just in hearing it. Um, So I'll see if I can get this to work. Nibbana's such a kiriya yadidang 
चारो सती पठानो इद भिखे भिखु काये कायानुपसी विहरति आता संपजानो सतिमा विनय लोके अभिजादो मनसंग वेदनासु वेदनानुपसी विहरति आतापि संपजानो सतिमा विनय लोके अभिजादो मनसंग चित्ते चित्तानुपसी विहरति आतापि संपजानो सतिमा विनय लोके अभिजादो मनसंग धम्मेशुधम्मानुपसी विहरति आतापि संपजानो सतिमा विनय लोके अभिजादो मनसंग I don't think I'll be able to improve on that uh, with anything I may say now, but I have to keep going, so I will. One of these times I'm just going to let it play. It take about the right amount of time for one of these talks. So as I think uh, Joseph may have said in one of his talks, uh, the word satipatthana is usually translated as foundation of mindfulness or uh, establishment of mindfulness. And uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, in one uh, place uh, where I read, he's, he equates this, the quality there um, with a, a mode of dwelling or abiding. He, he would translate it as abiding in mindfulness. And so the last part there, just uh, the last section of the chanting you just heard, was the, um, the Buddha speaking, uh, naming these four abidings. And the translation goes like this, one abides contemplating the body as a body. One abides contemplating feelings as feelings. One abides contemplating mind as mind. One abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful, having put away desires and discontent for the world. That's a slight abbreviation of that naming of these four abidings. And I think this is important, this sense of dwelling or abiding in these four ways because of the the way that it emphasizes 
the quality of awareness, of being aware, is emphasized there over um, any kind of emphasis on, on the particular object. That it is this quality of abiding there, this focus on the awareness, the mindfulness, that's the key. And we can learn from any object. So they're not, um, the object is in some ways less important than the quality of, of mindful awareness, you could say. And simply put, these four abiding satipatthanas, they take the entirety of what we can experience, everything, and look at it in, in terms of four kinds of categories, four spheres of attention. Uh, Tom Jeffs calls it four frames of reference. And the, the beauty of the practice is that nothing is left out. Our whole life is there. And that's really important. Our practice will not come to completion if we exclude any aspect of our life from it. But if we distill this teaching down to its, its essence, you could say, what the Buddha is saying is, pay careful attention to your experience and know what's really ha- happening. See what's really happening there. And so these four establishments, just to refresh for us, they're mindfulness of the body, kaya, nupasana. Mindfulness of feeling tone, vedana, this pleasant, unpleasant, or neither one of those. Vedana, nupasana. Mindfulness of mind, citta, nupasana. And mindfulness of objects of the mind, dhammas, dhamma, nupasana could say patterns that occur in the mind that we can, uh, like lenses that we can look through in different ways of seeing experience. And for the most part, our practice is not so much that we are deciding to place our attention in one of these areas. It's the, the practice really is a shifting flow between them that's a natural process. Although at times we may highlight one or the other or some aspect of one or the other may uh, present itself to our attention. For the most part, it's an organic process and not so much a doing on our part. I'm going to stick mostly with the first foundation, the first uh, establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness directed to the body, kaya, body. This is a rich field, and, and we spend a lot of time here. And the Buddha praised mindfulness of the body very highly in different places. I'll read a few things from uh, a part of the Anguttara Nikaya called the Kayagata Sati Vaga. Even as one who encompasses with his mind the mighty oceans includes thereby all the rivulets that run into the ocean. Just so, O monks, whoever develops and cultivates mindfulness directed to the body includes thereby all the wholesome states that partake of supreme knowledge. One thing, O monks, if developed and cultivated leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. One thing, if developed and cultivated, leads to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and liberation. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. If one thing, 
O bhikkhus, is developed and cultivated. Ignorance is abandoned. Supreme knowledge arises. Delusion of self is given up. The underlying tendencies are eliminated and the fetters are discarded. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. So I th- it seems like from that, that that this is a useful place to, to put our attention at times. It sounds like it has quite a lot of potential for us. And so in, in the elaboration on the section on mindfulness of the body, there are a number of ways that uh, we're instructed to be able to practice there. Um, it begins with mindfulness of the breathing, this section. And there are kind of four ways that we might pay attention to the experience of breathing. The first one is simply knowing. One knows one is breathing in, and one knows one is breathing out. One knows an in-breath and out-breath. One knows if that in-breath or out-breath is long or if it is short. When breathing in and out, one breathes in and out experiencing the whole body. This can be seen in a couple of ways in terms of the whole body of of a breath, the beginning, the middle, the ending of a breath, of an in-breath and of an out-breath, the fullness of an entire breath, or feeling being mindful of the breath within the entire body system, both of those ways or either of those ways. And then one breathes in, calming the bodily formation and breathes out, calming, a little more active in that way, actually using the breath to calm the body. Second way of mindfulness of the body is in terms of the postures. Uh, the four postures, and we've been instructing in these to some extent, and sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. One knows the body in these postures. And then in terms of activities, bodily activities, going forward and returning, looking ahead, looking away, looking behind, flexing and extending the limbs, moving the arms and legs, wearing clothing, carrying things, eating, drinking, tasting, defecating, and urinating, standing, sitting, going to sleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. All these activities of the body. In terms of the anatomical parts of the body, so traditionally there are are 32 parts that are used for this contemplation, beginning with hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, bones, and so forth, skin, organs, bodily fluids. So we we see the body in terms of its component parts, all that go to make it up. In terms of what are called the four great elements, this is another way we can see the body in terms of the earth element, the water element, the air element, and the fire or temperature element. We look at the body, um, we contemplate actually in one section, one is um, suggested that one contemplate a decaying corpse and all that happens as a corpse decays. This was a practice that was um, more common at the time of the Buddha. There were 
corpses decaying around that were more available to contemplate. Places called charnel grounds or would be one on the outskirts of Barry, where you could go and hang out with rotting corpses if you were so inclined. And one compares one's own body to that. Someone once sent me a video, I think you can get it on YouTube, that's of a time-lapse, um, short time-lapse film of a, it was a small animal, I think it was a, a badger or a fox or something, uh, going through the decaying process in just a few minutes, what would take days, weeks, I don't know. It was amazing to watch this change from this recognizable form to earth and things beginning to sprout from that. And then finally, the the last way of uh, contemplating is just simply knowing there is a body. And Joseph referred to this teaching in his very early instruction that we've been repeating to bring this, actually bring this phrase, there is a body to mind. Simplicity of that knowing body bodily life that way, and what that can open up for us in our practice. So tonight I want to look at the four elements in a little bit more uh, detail. The Pali word for for the elements is datu. And uh, it's like, they're like lenses that we look at our experience of body through look at it in these four different ways. And we hear the, the terms earth, air, fire, and water. It sounds maybe kind of archaic and almost alchemical sounding like some um, you know, ancient, outdated, almost antiquated way of looking at things. You know, And we all know we've trained in science perhaps and, and we, we have ideas about things and we'd say, well, I don't know if I go for this earth, air, fire, and water business. That sounds um, odd to us, maybe. And for this way of seeing the body to, to make any sense and to have any value for us, we have to look at our direct experience of body. The words, these words, earth, air, water, and fire, in and of themselves, they're, they're not important. This isn't an intellectual exercise or something to adopt as, a, as an idea. Okay, yeah, now I'm, I'm into earth, air, and fire, and water. Um, but in our direct experience of, of materiality of this form, then we can see how these things manifest, these datus. So there's a, there are clear descriptions of these in the texts. So the earth element is patavidatu, and its manifestation is solidity, the range from hardness to softness, and different uh, qualities of texture, roughness to smoothness, earth element. Water, apodatu, has characteristics of fluidity and cohesion. You can imagine or remember the experience of flowing water, tears in, the, in your own body or the feeling of water in the mouth, perhaps. Um, in the world, rain or running water that touches the body, this flowing quality of water. The quality of cohesion, we can imagine if you take flour, if you're baking 
and you take uh, powdered ground up wheat flour and you mix it with some liquid, it coheres it, it glues it together. It's that binding agent there with dust to make mud. We can imagine these bodies, I think it's some huge amount of it is, maybe 75% of it is water. Some giant amount of it is made of water. If you removed the water part, you just have a, a dry heap of bits there. If we could take the water out of a Greg and, and just pile it there, you could check it out. It would just be, it wouldn't, it would be a lot smaller. <laughs> so it's that quality that binds the, the other parts together and holds it in. There's a kind of, uh, there's a, a term turgid, uh, water-filled. It has a, a binding and a um, holding together with the water in that way. And then fire element is the range of temperature. The fire sounds hot, but it's, it's hot to cold and everything in between, heat and coolness. And we see this in our own body, places of warmth and times when there's warmth in the body and, and then the warmth of, and coolness in the world as we're touched by the world. And the air or wind, bayodatu, fire is tejodatu. It's uh, wind or air element has characteristics of uh, movement, pressure, tension, tightness. You can think, one way to think of this is, is when you blow up a balloon or when the, the lungs fill with air, there's this increase of pressure movement and then a sense of tightness there, like the tightness in a, a balloon that you might blow up. And so these elements in our, in our experience, they occur they don't ever really occur by themselves alone. They, they show up in pairs or, or groups. I think um, in a certain way, we could say they're all always manifesting. They are. Sometimes one or another will show up more obviously, uh, predominate. And so in our meditation practice, when we, we go to our direct experience below our concepts about things, then we can begin to touch these directly. You know, if we look in a mirror and we see all these parts, heads and torsos and arms and legs and things, you know, and there we are standing there, we see that. But then if we sit in meditation and turn the attention to the direct experience of body, then we have a very different, it's a very different experience, isn't it? So I'd like to actually do a short guided meditation right now. So you can just sit as you are. You don't have to alter your posture necessarily. Just sit comfortably. You can leave the eyes open if you like or let them gently close. It might be a little better with closed eyes, but not required. And, and just feel the, uh, just come to the simplicity of body in terms of the knowing of the sitting posture. We just know body sitting. Feel the whole body sitting. Maybe a sense of the posture, maybe a sense of the, the solidity there, or the, the earthiness of it. Feel the contact with the floor, with your feet, or 
parts of the body that are touching the floor. And that touching, the hardness may be apparent there. Heaviness, hardness, solidity. Earth sitting on earth. The hardness of the floor beneath you. The solidness there. Now let the attention come into your mouth for a moment. May feel some wetness there. Subtle sense of the water element. Bring your attention to your lips. Let your lips slowly come apart. Maybe a feeling of stickiness. The lips were touching and then there's a sticky, this cohesion quality of the moisture in the mouth there. Cohering that. And the water element there. While the tension is in the mouth, let the tongue gently touch the teeth. Rub along the, the surface of the front teeth. There's may notice a roughness there back to the earth element. Or gently touch the teeth together, that hardness of earth element. And the moistness of water there in the mouth. And then back to the experience of the whole body and you may notice qualities of warmth there or possibly coolness in parts. Maybe where the hands are touching there's maybe warmth or coolness there or perhaps in the area of the belly or chest where the clothing is is heavier and there's more warmth and where the skin is exposed there may be quality of coolness. And then if we bring the attention to the breath, perhaps the breath at the nostrils, we can be aware of movement there and perhaps coolness or warmth as well. Perhaps coolness on the in-breath and warmth on the out-breath at the nostrils. We may notice the movement, pressure, tension, tightness in the belly as the lungs fill with air, as the diaphragm moves to expand. Movement on the out-breath. So then we see, just in the simplicity of letting the attention rest in the, in the body, in this materiality, what we see there is this shift and flow of changing sensations. You could say it's like a dance of these different elements. 
manifesting in these ways of hardness and softness and warmth and coolness and tension and stickiness and so on. You know, we don't experience those parts that we see in the mirror, arm and leg and head, torso. So in a certain way, these are concepts that we hold about the body. And of course, both things are true. You're sitting there, I'm sitting here, and we need to feed and clean and take care of the body. But is that somehow more real than our experience of this flow of changing sensations? Can we see that both of these experiences are equally real? But if we explore the body in this elemental way, in terms of the elemental nature, this experience directly of these flow of sensations there, there's an important and really critical shift in our perspective that comes from that. Because if we, if we stay on the realm of concepts, and this, this is, seems obvious, but it's really an important thing to notice in, as you go through the day. If we stay, stay in the realm of concepts, we're not really going to get into the realm of, of true insight because concepts, are, they don't change. They're just ideas that we may hold to at certain times. But this flow of elements changing like that, that's in a state of constant flow and flux and change, isn't it? I mean, if we really look, that's all we're gonna see there is change and flow. And this, seeing this, opens up a lot, seeing the truth of change. This opens up the whole practice. And so exploring the body in terms of the, these elements is really a rich field of exploration. And, and it brings us a lot, a lot of benefit. The first um, one way that it's, it's talked about, mindfulness of the body, we don't think about so much probably, but it's uh, expressed in the, in the texts a lot. Um, is in terms of it's seen as a protection. Mindfulness of the body is a kind of protection for us. And the Buddha spoke about this in terms of uh, the kilesas, the um, defilements of mind, the, the root causes of suffering, of, of greed, hatred, and delusion, and the manifestations of those in the hindrances and these difficult uh, mental qualities. He spoke about them in one place and often spoke about these things in terms of the figure, the personification of, of them as Mara, the tempter, and said uh, that Mara cannot invade the mind of one in whom mindfulness of the body is well established. He spoke about it in terms of um, when mindfulness immersed in the body, established in the body, if that's not developed, not pursued and developed, then Mara can gain a foothold. And there's this image. Uh, suppose someone were to take a, a heavy rock, a stone, and toss it into a pile of wet clay. What would happen? Would the stone ball enter into that wet clay or not? I was asking the monks, yes, it would. In the same way, in one who does not have mindfulness well-developed, pursued and developed, mindfulness of the body, Mara can gain entry, gain a foothold. 
but in one whomever mindfulness in the body, mindfulness immersed in the body is developed and pursued, Mara cannot gain entry, cannot gain a foothold. Suppose that some one were to throw a ball of, of string, or we could imagine like a rubber band ball, a rubbery bouncy ball, against a, a strong door panel, against a wall. Would that ball gain entry or, or what would happen? Asking the monks again, no, it wouldn't. It would bounce off. In the same way, when mindfulness in the body is well-developed and pursued, there is no entry for Mara, no foothold there. This quality of protection. Seeing the body in terms of the elements can help us to, um, helps to cut through a tendency to identify with the body as I, as me, as belonging to me as mine, this tendency to claim ownership of it. If we investigate the elements, we see that these elemental qualities there are the same in the world as they are in the body. There's no difference in that way. They manifest externally and internally in the same way. You know, and we can see it through our direct experience and like in the same way as we did in the short guided meditation I did. And then in contact with the world, being touched by the world, touching the world, we see that these things are the same. And so when we really see this directly, then it's harder to lay claim to it. You know, it's harder to claim hardness as mine. My hardness. My heat. It's, it sounds ridiculous. You know, this is my heat here. But if we stand in the feel the heat of the sun, heat is heat. Hardness is hardness. The hardness in the body, the hardness in the world is just the same. And we're not separate from nature. You know, so often in our language, the way we talk, the way we think a lot of the time is we see ourselves as somehow separate from the environment, separate from nature, that it's, it's somehow other than us. But when we look at the elements, look at the body in terms of the elements, we see that, that in a very fundamental way, we are just a part of the landscape in terms of this, the elements manifesting. We come from nature, we're supported by it, we're part of it, and we return to it. It's a natural flow of things, the same as all of nature. There's a real change in our perception when we explore the body in its elemental nature. We see that, that it's all internal, external, is just this dance of elements unfolding lawfully, doing their thing. When we look at the elemental nature of the body, it points the, to the relationship of, of mind and matter, of mentality and materiality. 
of Nama and Rupa in Pali. We see that um, mind has knowing as its function, but there's no form there. Mind has no form, but it knows, it cognizes. Body has form, but it has no knowing capacity. It's just these hardnesses and softnesses and things, heats and heat and coolness. And so what we see in our experience is a meeting of nama and rupa. We see mentality coming together, mind knowing matter, mind knowing body in this body. Seeing this namarupa parachedanyana, this insight into mentality, materiality. It's part of how the path unfolds in terms of our understanding of things and insight. We start to see the conditioned nature of things and how mind and matter influence and condition one another. It's really interesting to see this. It's really simple. Think of times when um, anger or shame, embarrassment arise in the mind and what happens in the body? There's a direct conditioning effect there. Maybe heat may arise in the body, tension or tightness, anger or shame and this heat. The body flushes with this. It it reflects this uh, mind in that way. When the mind is really chilled out, kind of concentrated, the body responds then as well, doesn't it? It adjusts to that. If there's a lot of calm and concentration in the mind, the body gets very, it may be maybe feelings of lightness. The metabolic processes may become very fine and subtle as a response to that. When there's a lot of joy and rapturous quality in the mind, there can be lightness and, and uh, pleasant tingling feelings and different kinds of uh, bodily response, mind conditioning matter, mind conditioning body in those times. We, may, we can see the quality of intention arising in the mind sometimes, and then the response of the body to move. And matter, and, uh, materiality conditioning mind at times. For example, if there's uh, a lot of heat in the body and there may be uh, a mental response of, of aversion to that or excessive hardness, a lot of hardness. If you sit long enough, hardness really shows up, doesn't it? Hardness, hardness. And then the mind, uh, there may be uh, resistance to that in the mind, aversion to that hardness, all kinds of thoughts that come. If it's too hot, oh, they should turn on the AC. Too cold, oh, they should turn on the heat. Materiality conditioning mind and thoughts coming from that. These different things that can happen. Oops, I'm using up my time. Hmm. We see materiality conditioning the arising of consciousness itself. We see that there's contact and then consciousness arises in response to that. 
This is what contact is. Contact in the body and body consciousness arising. Exploring the elements really reveals the characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta. We see that it's this flow of constant change. The elements constant change. Nothing is lasting. Even things that we think of as solid, some solid um, unpleasant sensation, for example, that feels like, oh, it's just a lump or a block. But if we look at it, it's a shifting dance of, of changing sensations within that, coming and going. We see that there's nothing in that that lasts for any length of time at all. We start to see actually it's changing very, very rapidly. And seeing change in this opens up the seeing of the unreliability of any of it. It's not reliable. We can't have, ask a pleasant sensation in the body to last and be our source of being happy for any length of time. It doesn't do it. It won't do it. It's unsatisfactory in, in the long run if we try to hold on to it. And we see that it's all happening due to causes and conditions. It's, it's coreless. It has uh, this quality of not-self there causes and conditions and we can't control it and decide to have it the body only be light and pleasant feeling doesn't respond to our wishes in that way it responds to the changing causes and conditions that come and so it's an interesting exploration of the body this elemental nature of it You can look at it this way internally and and then in the world, these elements manifesting in the body and then the way they manifest in the world. It's an interesting exploration. Just as we go through the day in our daily activities, like at lunchtime is a really interesting place. You know, we might notice the elements there. We notice the hardness of the teeth coming together to chew or... um, the transforming of food becoming more liquid in the mouth, like lettuce, you know, it's like 98% water or something. It just turns to water in the mouth. We notice the water element there. We might notice the water element in, in when we're drinking liquid or, or the water flowing across the body in the shower. This flowing nature, stickiness, cohesion from water element in the body, in our contact with the world may show up at times. In our various postures that we practice in, sitting, standing, and so forth, we will notice qualities of solidity, of hardness there, softness, textures of the clothing, textures in the world as we walk, touch things, Benches that we sit on, rocks that we might touch. They have this, these earth qualities of hardness, texture, solidity there. Warmth and coolness in the body that manifests as we're going through the day internally, externally. Heat in the body, the warmth of the sun, the coolness of the breeze, or the movement of the breeze touching the skin. Air element there. Pressure, tightness, movement within the body, the breath moving in and out. See these elements. 
it really can be quite, you know, can bring a lot of interest and happiness to us to see these things, how they happen, recognize them in our body and mind, seeing how our internal experience is reflected in the world, that connection, seeing how we're part of nature in this way, can start to really loosen things up in our world, in our internal world. It can really, I don't know, open up and loosen up our tendency to claim ownership of any of it. And this really leads to great joy when we let go of owning it. I may have used this quotation already. I don't remember. It's one I'm fond of, so forgive me if I did, but it's a good one. The great uh, Thai forest master, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, once said this one very simple sentence. He said, what we're doing with this practice is giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. I feel like this uh, turning the attention to the elemental nature of the body and seeing its relationship to mind is really points to this. In a certain way, that's all, the whole practice comes down to that. We're just giving it back to nature, letting go of ownership of it, coming back into alignment with natural processes. The whole deal, everything that you can experience in this mind and body internally and everything you can experience in the world is just the flow of natural processes doing its thing that we can just give it back. It's really relaxing. We have to carry that around with us. It's like we set down a burden that we didn't know we were hauling around. Give it back to nature. So I want to end this evening with a a short, uh, an excerpt from um, a longer poem, I guess you'd call it a poem. It's uh, verses that are attributed to the venerable Ananda, the Buddha's attendant. Having been an attendant on numerous occasions, actually, somehow I have fallen into the attendant role a lot in my Dharma life. I like being an attendant. It's been a wonderful thing. If you ever get the chance to be an attendant, you might consider doing it. I've gotten a lot out of it. You get to hang out behind the scenes (laughs) with some cool beings. This is uh, from a collection of verses called the Teragata, Verses of the Elders. Um, And this is, uh, this verse is apparently and the timing of them was after the Buddha had passed away. Uh, Venerable Ananda outlived the Buddha, and uh, the Buddha's two chief disciples, Sariputta and Mahamogalana, were gone, and a bunch of the old gang had been dying off. Right? So it's kind of a sad poem. But it's poignant and beautiful. It has a poignant reflection on the power of mindfulness of the body. So you can take the sadness of it. 
So this is, these are the words of Venerable Ananda after the Buddha and a lot of the old ones are, have passed away. All the directions are obscure. The teachings are not clear to me. With our benevolent friend gone, it seems as if all is darkness. For one whose friend has passed away, one whose teacher is gone for good, there is no friend that can compare with mindfulness of the body. The old ones have all passed away. I do not fit in with the new ones. And so today I muse alone, like a bird who has gone to roost. So we'll have a moment of silence, eloquent silence here, and uh, let these words just drift away. So thank you for <clears throat> listening this evening. And we have- Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.